if, if you're just like working on tracks every evening, which I do recommend by the way, but if you're working on it every single day, that's all you do. You take up all your free time, then yeah, literally take a week off and don't do any music and then come back to it. And uh, hopefully it will feel fresh and new again and you'll be excited to, to make something. What's up, producers? I'm Sam Matler, and you're listening to the EDM Podcast, a show where I interview successful artists and people in the industry. You'll have to forgive me because I have a terrible cold, so if I sound a little bit dull or nasally, then you know why. But when I recorded the interview, I didn't have a cold, um, so you'll be relieved to hear that. In this episode, I interview Adam Pollard, also known as Multiplier. Adam is a sound designer, but he's better known as an educator. He's got a a very popular YouTube channel, um, about 30,000 subscribers. He's also done courses for places like Ask Audio, Groove3, Sonic Academy, uh, and a lot more. And in this interview, we talk about Adam's background, uh, how he went from studying investment banking to eventually becoming a full-time educator and producer. We also talk about how to get your foot in the door making sample packs and or tutorials and how to do it well, Uh, what's missing on YouTube when it comes to tutorials, whether or not sound design is important and how to get better at sound design, the link between comedy and music and a lot more. Make sure to check out Adam's work, especially his YouTube channel. If you search Multiplier on YouTube, uh, you'll see it come up. Otherwise, I'll leave a link below that you can click on. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode. And without further ado, here is Multiplier. This episode is brought to you by EDM Foundations. EDM Foundations is my course for new producers those who've been producing for under 12 months, or even those who've just started. The whole idea of the EDM Foundations course is that you learn the fundamentals of music production by actually doing and not just learning the theoretical stuff. The course consists of over 12 hours worth of streamable video, where I walk you through the creation of three songs and give you advice and tips for working on your own original alongside them. We've had over 500 people sign up for this course. Many of them have had great results. If you want to learn more about the course, head over to edmfoundations.com. Welcome back everyone to the EDM podcast. Today I'm with Adam Pollard, better known as Multiplier. Adam, how's it going? I'm I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. Thank you very much. Now, I want to start off with your background. What got you into music? Um... And also, what got you into making tutorials on YouTube? Because that's what I think you're known for the most. Definitely. Um, give us a little bit of background, how you got into all of this. Yeah, definitely. So it's a slightly strange one where I was basically at university maybe five, six years ago now. So yeah, 2010. Um, all on track to do the investment banking thing. And then mm. started listening to, to Dubstep. And that was right when Skrillex was about to blow up. So it was the... Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites EP. So right as that was about to blow up Beatport, um, started listening to Skrillex and then ended up going to a Skrillex gig completely randomly by myself. Um, <laughs> that ended up being in a different country. Um, but yeah, it turned out to be Skrillex's second ever UK show. So it was back when he was quite wow. small. Um, so yeah, ended up going to the Skrillex gig, um, had the best time ever and then realised halfway through the gig that Skrillex is having a lot more fun than I was doing maths six or seven hours a day. <laughs> Um, trying to be an invest, uh, best, uh, trying to be an investment banker. So yeah, I basically just decided that yeah, I can t- I continue out my degree, get it. But basically, yeah, from that moment on, it was all just geared around geared around music. So I started producing music, um, and then yeah, I think it was I, I started doing tutorials way before I should have done, uh, like most people tend to do mm-hmm. uh, with releasing music. And I also released music way before I should have done. But it was it was before <laughs> the kind of I mean, it, it feels like everyone's trying to do tutorials now. So I kind of got in there a little bit early where you could have a really clickbaity title, like how to sound like Skrillex or Noisier um, and stuff. And it was fine. People would still click it. So I got in there really early with the tutorials on YouTube. Yeah, probably in the same year still, probably only a few months after I started producing. Hmm. The first tutorials were ridiculous. I mean, if you ever go back to my first few videos on the channel, they are a bit a bit ridiculous or very ridiculous. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, eventually after doing yeah, literally hundreds of those, and then thousands of uh, 
uh, tutorials for other companies I've actually got good. So it's uh, it's taken taken quite a while to get there, but it, it was literally just getting in there early and trying to use it as a. I mean, it, it was a way to try and get my my artist um, profile bigger because. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, especially at the time, you could just have a video how to sound like noisier, and then people will click it, even if the tutorial was useless. So you can't really do that as much now, just because everyone's trying to do those clickbaity tutorials. Exactly. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. Um, interesting that you, you know, you were wanting to do investment banking. That's quite the big shift. Um, it's, it's literally the, the exact opposite. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, was, I was all set up to do the proper conservative, like proper job thing. Um, yeah. And then you literally just flip that right on its head. Were there any points though? Because you know, I've talked to others who have, who have done a similar thing, um, and for many of them, like there's a point where you know things get hard, and it's like, oh, maybe, maybe I took the wrong path. Maybe I should have done, you know, the conservative thing. Did that ever happen to you? Or was it, you know, clear cut from the get go? Um, I mean, it was, it was it was all transitional. It wasn't like there was one moment where <coughs> I realised right, um, music makes sense. The proper job doesn't. It literally just got progressively more and more likely that the music thing could work out. Um, and, and it did take uh, nearly five years to, to get there. So like within the first year or so, I, I managed to, well, yeah, within the first year of producing, I managed to get my first release. So that gave me a, a whole bunch of confidence that the music thing could work. Mm. And then within two years of starting to produce, I had my first international gig where they fly you out and you play like a, like, almost like a supporting headline slot. So mm. I had a few a few nice little confidence boosters along the way that gave me the confidence that it could work. But then, of course, after then, you've then got to consider, right, well, I'm starting to build up a bit of a following, but how am I actually going to turn this into a job? Because actually mm. monetizing it's a whole different thing. So, yeah, and then it was probably about a year or, year or two after that, or about a year after that, I then started to get a little bit of money coming in from sample packs, but again, not enough to live off. And then just bit by bit, you end up realizing that, Oh, it could actually work, uh, but it, it does certainly take a lot longer than people realise. It's it's like that saying. I don't know if you've, if you've heard it. I imagine you have if you follow all the business stuff, where mm. you overestimate what you can do in a year, but underestimate what you can do in five. Um, I think yeah, I think, never, I think I think a Bill Gates quote. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know who started it, but yeah, it sounds like something Bill Gates would do. But yeah, that that saying really hasn't ever been more true than the other last five years. And also, just talking to my friends and stuff, it's uh, I'm, I'm more and more convinced of that every day. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, it's it's been similar for me about five years. You know, EDM Pro has been around for three. I've been producing for five or six. And it's it seems to be like at this point now um, where things are taking off. And it, it does take a long time. But I want to kind of dive into this because I know there are a lot of producers out there who are talented. They have the skills and they want to you know they work a job that they don't like and they want to maybe make some sample packs some tutorials um monetize in ways that don't involve you know touring the world constantly um, because that's not feasible for everyone nor do they want to do it what advice would you give to those people who do have the the skill or talent um but just don't know how to kind of get their foot in the door um in in that area yeah, definitely. So I think it's a really important thing to <coughs> thing to figure out because for lots of people, um, I, I think Stephen from some Cymatics was talking about it. For a lot of people, the only way you make music in in music is by touring, but that's really not the case. Mm. I mean, for me personally, if I was to earn exactly the same as I would touring as I do right now, making videos, I would still prefer to make videos. So I, I think for some people, touring isn't even the thing they want to do. So. Mm. As soon as you kind of put that to the side and think about the other ways to to, to kind of monetize your music and make a living doing what you like to do, you've kind of got you've got to get creative. I mean, there are lots of ways you can do it. So, like for me, it's it's sample packs, uh, YouTube videos, and most of it's maybe sixty seventy percent is making courses for other other big websites, um, and then also videos for like Output Sounds and Loop Masters and stuff like that. So, just lots of videoy sort of things. But yeah. uh, you've really got to got to get creative and think about where can you add value in the industry. Uh, like for me, I got into sample packs at a time when you didn't have to be that good at making sample packs to to get your foot in the door because um, I kind of saw the opportunity a bit early. So I got a little bit of experience when my ability was okay, but maybe not amazing. And then after mm-hmm. that experience, I actually got good. Whereas now, if you look at sample packs, it's uh, slightly different just because I, th- I think Cymatics is partly to to blame or or the opposite of blame, but everyone's trying to make a load of money off sample packs. I think after Cymatics, that's yeah. what it, it, it feels like. So 
I mean, you certainly no, can that, do it. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you certainly can do it, but uh, it's it's a lot more difficult than it used to be. The, the the really good thing about it, though, is it is entirely meritocratic compared to say making music and releasing on Mousetrap or whatever, where to some extent you do have to find the right people. The cool thing mm. about the sample pack companies and even the tutorial course websites is if you send them a professional email, they 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 absolutely will uh, will read it and they'll treat it seriously. Mm. So if you can make good samples and you can make good tutorials. There's no there's no barrier to entry. You just got to approach these guys professionally. They'll look at it, and if they think you can make money with them, then yeah, they'll they'll get you on board. It's really cool. That's awesome. I like that, and I think um, I totally agree about the the saturation of sample packs. Um, obviously, bought on by cymatics. I don't think anyone's going to debate that. And it's in some respects, it's good that everybody's trying to start something up. Um, but perhaps tutorials are an easier way to get get your foot in the door because i know with youtube for example like and i'm sure you have noticed this that some of your videos just get a ton of views like they hit that point of critical mass and they just keep going because they're good normally yeah um and i think you know youtube doesn't care about who you know or exactly you're connected to it's just comes down to the quality of the video and whether you use a clickbaity title or not as well i suppose Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for, I mean, for, for me, YouTube's got two. I mean, I, I mean, for example, I've never paid for any, any advertising on any YouTube video ever, um, mm. and lots of the biggest YouTube channels haven't. So it's totally possible without having a big budget, which is pretty cool. But yeah, if, if anyone's listening to this and wondering about YouTube, it's it's pretty simple, really. You've got to have just discoverability, so people have got to be able to discover your content, and then it's got to be good to back it up. Like it's all well and good having a clickbaity title. You need some clickbaity mm. titles to get people in the door. But then if your content's no good, then they're not going to subscribe. They're not going to check out your channel. So I have this weird thing on my channel where my my almost like my best rated videos have some of the lowest view counts. Um, but hmm. then the, the more clickbaity videos have the worst uh, worst ratings. If, if, if you look hmm. at it, say, as a percentage of thumbs up and thumbs down. So I, I have to constantly strike this balance of trying to attract new people with clickbaity titles, like seven things I hate about Ableton. But then mm-hmm. also have have enough good content in that video to get people excited to check out my more proper videos. So it's a it's a bit of a balancing act because if you have yeah. pure clickbait, you don't really have anything to offer the, the viewers, and then you don't really have any value anyway. So it's it's definitely a weird weird sort of game you have to play with the clickbait versus good content. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally feel you there. Um, kind of a two part question. The first is. You know, a lot of your videos, I mean, there there are a lot of tutorial channels out there and a lot of them are good, but I, I feel like a lot of them also just rehash content, um, you know, ideas that have been around for a long time. And so someone watches a tutorial and then they kind of just make the same one. Yeah. Um, but a lot of your videos are unique, you know, like I watched one the other day on, oh, I think it was... It was something to do with swing, like not no non-destructive quantization. Oh yeah, that was a yeah, and I've been using Ableton for for a long time, and I didn't know about that. Um, how do you come up with with ideas for tutorials? Do they just come to you? Um, <coughs> is there a certain method you have, or, or it's a like, it's, it's it's a bit of everything to be honest. I mean, to to some extent, I do do a little bit of that, like rehashing of the the content from other people. Um, like like mm. to use that example you just gave. Of the non uh, yes, I think it's non-destructive quantization in Ableton. Um, I actually read that in the manual because uh, because no one actually reads the Ableton manual, so I I, I got that little yeah, idea from yeah. the manual. Uh, there are definitely some things that I just completely pick out of my own head. Uh, I, can't, I can't think of any off the top of my head without looking through my list of videos. Um, so some of them just come to me, which I think are pretty cool. But mm-hmm. then something I've been doing quite a bit more of recently is looking at other YouTube channels in other industries like cars or surfing or whatever. <clears throat> to see how they do it and then to see how they, mm. they build up fans and what sort of formats they use. And then I've been trying to incorporate some of that into my videos as well because strangely, I've, I've only just started watching YouTube about three or four months ago, which sounds a bit weird, but hmm. I, w- I would pretty much never look at any YouTube videos w- almost ever uh, until three or four months ago. Now I've started to get into it a little bit more. And yes, I've just been looking at other other industries just to figure out the, the, their formats because it's still quite a new thing. Um 
although some of us may look like, I mean, if you look at Seamless, he's got like 100,000 subscribers or whatever. So yeah. he seems pretty established, but in the, in the grand scheme of things, music production channels are still quite small. Like if you compare it to say the car vloggers and stuff on YouTube, we're like a fraction of the size of those guys. I mean, those guys have like three to 700,000 subscribers, some of them. So, mm. I mean, that's the sort of level music could get to. There's absolutely no reason why it couldn't. Uh, it's just, just just a case of figuring it all out a bit more. And I reckon in five or 10 years, you'll see, yeah, there'll be 10 people with over half a million subscribers. Uh, I reckon it'll be pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this question might be a bit more difficult to answer, but, you know, say someone's listening to this right now and they want to start up a YouTube channel. Um, what What do you think is missing in the world of YouTube when it comes to production tutorials? Um, I definitely think it's, I mean, you, you can probably tell if you watch my videos, the big thing is having a, well, for me, for me personally, is trying to have a personality behind it. Um, like, have you seen Top Gear, the, the British Top Gear by any chance? Do you know? Yeah, of course. Brother? When Perfect, it was yeah. good, not not the new one. New one, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so something I've been try- trying to work out is, and I think I think I figured it out, is why the original Top Gear, uh, why those three presenters were so good compared to the new ones. Because, I mean, mm. the, the original British Top Gear is like a whole crazy thing. It's like the most watched uh, non-factual, or the, the most watched factual entertainment show, whatever sort of weird category mm. it falls under. And I, I think the secret behind it is, while Clarkson and um, Hammond and May, they have some great personality and stuff, they're also throwing in entertainment. And, and when, you, when, you, when you actually look at those Top Gear episodes, they're pretty much 60 to 80% jokes. I mean, they're not mm. kind of present, presenting it necessarily in the form of a comedian, so you wouldn't look at Clarkson as a comedian. But when you actually look at what he's doing, it's, it, I'm, I'm not, not even exaggerating, it's 60 to 80% entertainment. And I think yeah. that's something a lot of the tutorial producers are missing. And it's something that I try to incorporate. So you still have to give them useful information at the same time. You can't, you're not just a comedian. Of but course. If you, if you can present it in a, an entertaining way, then I think, I think that's a secret. And I heard another example of that recently as well, where if you think back to your favorite teacher at school, your favorite teacher at school wasn't just the one who told you all the correct information and got you to pass exams. It was the one who told you all the correct information and got you to pass exams, but also did it in an entertaining personable sort of way so mm. yeah I, I think it's something that most people are most people are missing to be honest and it's the thing that i've been doubling down on uh, in terms of building up my channel yeah i would agree with that um however like i i come across a lot not a lot of people but some people and perhaps this is just because they're cynical um but they say that they hate it when there's like a one or two minute intro on a youtube tutorial like i think it's stupid like i enjoy you yeah. know kind of knowing who's behind the tutorial but there do seem to be quite a few people out there who i don't know if you've experienced it but who who say just get to it like show me the sound you know blah yeah, blah blah it's a uh, it's, it's something i've been thinking quite a lot about and my conclusion is um may sound, it may sound a bit simple but there's every type of viewer so there are some types mm. of viewers that will happily watch Dead Mouse for seven or eight hours live streaming, just making music, not even talking. And I used to be that person when I had seven or eight hours uh, free, uh, yeah, <laughs> which doesn't really happen anymore. But there are literally people who just want to watch someone do something and they want to hang out in the room with that person. And there are some people, if, if I could produce seven hours of content a day, probably wouldn't be 10,000, but there'd be at least 100 people who would mm. watch me for seven hours a day because they're the, they're the people who like that. The flip side is there are some people who literally just just go to youtube to get the information that they don't want to be entertained for half an hour or for 10 minutes they just want to get in get out in two to four seven minutes even um and, and for those people even having 40 seconds of introduction is too long so there's no there's no pleasing everyone i think what i'm going to do in the future something i've been leaning towards now is just mixing up the the variety of videos i'm going mm. to do some shorter ones some medium length ones and then also some longer form ones as well but it's a yeah, I, th- I don't think the key thing is understanding there is every type of listener. I think what some people, certainly the older people don't realise is some people watch YouTube as TV. Like there's a whole generation of kids growing up that don't mm. watch TV, like how, how like my, even my generation, I'm, I'm only 25, watch TV. Um, so mm. for those for those people who literally just, they get home from school or they have a free Saturday, they turn on YouTube and just flick through channels. For them, watching a half an hour video of someone is is no big deal. It's just like watching a TV show. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I suppose, you know, if you try to cater for everyone, you cater for no one. Exactly, yeah. Like, if you, if you, if you, if you try to, yeah, what's, what's the saying? It's something like, the, the, the only way you can, probably ruining the phrase, but the, the only way you can, you'll definitely fail is if you try to please everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that's probably, the one. 
there's probably some really like pithy way of saying that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to I want to talk about sound design um, and specifically the role it plays in music production because I mean there's there's this ongoing debate you know between whether sound design oh whether you should use presets or you shouldn't or because presets are cheating. Um, some people argue that sound design is pointless when there are so many presets that exist. I mean. What's your thoughts on sound design in general? How important do you think it is? <clears throat> yeah, so uh, for me, sound design, it's it's almost like a... I mean, it's obviously a part of music production, but it's it's like a separate part of music production. Um, lo- lo- lots of people ask me in my Skype sessions and stuff, should I learn how to make my own kick drums or should I learn how to make my own bass sounds? And my answer is, if you want to. Um, it's, it's a perfectly valid way to make music, to never, ever design your own preset from scratch or never, ever make your own kick drum. That's perfectly cool. Um, I don't think it's cheating if you, mm. if you use presets, but at the same time, it's a really nice way of, it's a really nice way of working. So, so for me, presets is, or, or sound design is, it's definitely a part of music production, but it's not necessarily something you have to do. It's a sort of thing. You can't dip your foot into it and make something great. It's not something you can mm. spend uh, 20 hours doing and get anything meaningful out of. It's, it's something you have to spend 500 hours or, but at least at least a few hundred hours to get okay. Um, so so what, what I tend to recommend people do is in the first in the first year or two, yes, have a play around with sound design if you want, but don't feel like you have to. And also, I suppose even even longer than that, you should never feel like you have to design your own presets from scratch. The key thing when making a track is the creative part of the track comes from you. So, mm. for example, if you're making a, a dubstep track where the whole point of the dubstep track is a crazy bass modulation and this ridiculously cool sound. If that ridiculously cool sound that is the point of the track comes directly from a preset and you haven't done any any tweaking, then I would argue you haven't really made the track. All you've done is arrange a track. Whereas if say if say you're making a, a dubstep track and you use a kick drum from a sample pack where it's just a kick drum and no one's listening to the kick drum anyway, then that's perfectly cool because people are listening to your interesting bass that you did make. Mm. So it's all about where the creative part of your track comes from. And uh, I think that's why, for example, in more songwriting-focused EDM genres, it's, it's, it's especially fine to use presets because in a songwriting-focused genre, the preset is somewhat arbitrary most of the time. The interesting part is the yeah. melody and the chord progression. So in that situation, there's almost no point in reinventing the wheel or designing another super saw if it is just a super saw. So yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of just focusing on the the creative part and not worrying too much about how you got there i'm glad you said that uh because i felt the same way for a long time and i suppose i'm a little bit biased like i come from a trance background and obviously sound design isn't a huge part like it's not a huge focus in trance it's the melody the chord progressions and so on exactly and i've, I've always felt um in a strange way that that a lot of newer producers younger producers don't pay enough attention to that aspect of music production um, the songwriting aspect that is, you know, yeah. like actually making a good structure, <laughs> a good chord progression. Cause, and, and I've been a little bit um, going off on a little bit of a tangent, but, you know, I feel like that's focusing on that is what makes music memorable or what makes music that lasts. You know, if you think back to, if you have favorite songs from the 80s, I mean, I wasn't alive then, but I know, like I hear songs from the 80s and like the reason they, they lasted through the decades is because they were well put together. Yeah. Um, yeah. A bit of a rant, but I, I feel like more people should should spend yeah. time on that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, the thing I tell the new producers more than anything else, and to be honest, even experienced producers that are just a little bit stuck in a rut, is you've, you've just got to focus on that creative part of your track that makes it interesting. Like, mm. it's really easy, especially in dance music, where things the things happen in sections, they happen in blocks, they happen in a, mm. a structured sort of way. It's really easy just, just to go through the motions and do a painting by numbers track, partly because that's a lot of what you hear anyway. Um, I think it's really, really important people focus on just having an, either an interesting or an exciting bit of music. And then if you have an interesting or an exciting bit of music, then everything else is just details that obviously, if, if you can do the details, that's great, but you should always start off with having a track that has a purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, going back to sound design just quickly, um, if someone's listening to this and, and they haven't really played around with sound design, maybe they've played around with a few synths, but they don't know much about it. Uh, what would you recommend for people wanting to learn sound design or synthesis? Yeah, definitely. So 
the first thing to do is you have to understand a few of the <coughs> a few of the basic concepts, such as uh, voicing, so Unisim, LFOs, AD, ADSR, envelopes, um, LFOs. Just literally all those all those little words and stuff you see. If you just literally load up a synthesizer, zero, massive, FM8, whatever. You need to have a loose understanding of what some of the words mean. Otherwise, you're just going to be completely lost and not know what's going on. So I personally recommend either reading the manual. I mean, that's how I learned the fundamental concepts or just looking at some good video courses on it. I'm sure I'm sure there's some on YouTube or the paid websites. So first of all, learn what some of the concepts are so you can understand what you're working with. And then you should watch at least a few videos to see how people make the standard sounds using those concepts, stuff like a standard sort of plucky sound or a super saw or a dubstep wobble bass, whatever you want to call it. So you should, yeah, learn the fundamental concepts, then see how people use those fundamental concepts to make the basic sounds. And then once you can then understand how those basic sounds are made, you can start experimenting. I mean, some people recommend just just experiment, but for me personally, I think that experiment that ex- experimentation works a lot better once you have a, at least a, f- a loose understanding of the fundamentals. Otherwise, you're just twisting things and not knowing what's happening, and you mm-hmm. end up not even hearing things in the right way. One of the nice things about learning the fundamentals properly and understanding what a filter is and understanding different types of harmonics and how unison works is you end up critically listening to sounds in a way that you don't necessarily listen to sounds if you just purely experiment. If you just purely experiment, you'll just you'll just Oh, there's some sort of siren outside. Um, yeah, if, if, if you're just purely experimenting, then yes, you can get some cool sounds, but yeah, you're not really hearing those sounds in the, the right way necessarily, which can sometimes work out. Um, but yeah, I, I personally think it's best to at least have a good understanding of the basics. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's it's easy to go into something um, with the mindset of like pure trial and error, but I think you waste a lot of time. Yeah. You know, if you have at least some sort of roadmap or or guidelines, um, it speeds things up a lot. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, it's stuff like, to say, I mean, the the main fundamental concept I tend to tell most people about when they first start designing sounds is when, when you're first designing a sound in literally any synth, it could be analog, digital, FM, additives, or subtractive serum, whatever, is the, the main thing you do is you modulate the cutoff of a filter. That is the the most fundamental thing you do. Um, mm. So, and, and and it literally doesn't matter what synth you're using. So, once you start off with that, then it gives you at least something to work with that's constructive. If you're just playing around in an experimental way and you don't know, even know what a cutoff of a filter is, then you're probably going to be like messing about with the resonance, but that's not going to be doing anything. Then you're going to be playing around with phase, and then again, that might do something, but it probably won't, and you end up just wasting a lot of time, not really doing anything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you made a video called the five business books you must read as a music producer slash DJ. I can't remember what they are. I did watch a video, <laughs> but I've got a, a terrible memory. So um, for those who haven't seen it, what were the books, if you can remember them? And why do you think producers should read such books? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so yeah, the books are, let's see if I can even remember the order. The first one is called, uh, it's called Trust Me, I'm Lying. I can't remember the name. I think, think Brian the guy Holiday. Ever, yeah, Brian Holiday, that was it, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, cool, cool. Trust, trust me, I'm lying. It's basically a way of understanding how media works, which the the actual context of the book is for blogs and I think more specifically tech blogs and stuff. But mm-hmm. the exact same thing applies to music blogs. So it's almost like a how-to for manipulating the media industry. So if you read this book, it will open your eyes in terms of how the media works in general, but it also basically tell you step-by-step exactly how to manipulate or work your way through the music blogs. So, or, or the, say the YouTube networks, whatever sort of music outlet you looking at so if you're struggling to promote your music um which is tends to be most people's main problem uh, which is why i recommended it first yeah check out that book it's called trust me i'm lying by yeah brian holiday who's a pretty well-known marketeer uh, it's really cool and then i think i did two <coughs> what was next i did i did, I did two of the like the, of the business classics so there was rich dad poor dad and mm. uh another of the classics oh yeah four hour work week i think um yeah, yeah. which those books I mean, yeah, I, I won't do a review now because they're like industry standard things. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Rich, rich dad, poor dad, and then four hour work week. They're definitely worth checking out at some stage in your life. And then I did, uh, and then there was one called Profit First from Mike something or other, uh, which is which is basically a way of managing your money, which is yep. something that you don't necessarily need to look at if you're a 16 year old producer, but if you if you're starting to get to the stage where you're earning a little bit of money from music. 
I would recommend reading it early. It's, it's, a, it's a way of making sure that for all your money coming in, you have it allocated such that you'll never run out of money for anything, which is especially mm. important because um, what happened to me, and I'm sure happens to everyone when they first go self-employed, especially in music, is you first start earning a little bit of money and then it comes to time to do your taxes and then suddenly you have this ridiculously oh. huge tax bill and yeah, yeah. You, you, you go from feeling like, oh, cool, I have loads of money to oh, I don't have much money at all all of a sudden. Yeah. Or if, if you're more unlucky, um, you go from having a little bit of money through to having less than no money and no way of paying for it, which luckily never happened to me, but has happened yeah. to some people before. So I recommend, although it's not the coolest thing to talk about in the world of music and stuff, it's, uh, it's something, especially if you're looking to take this full time, you need to need to have an understanding of your financials. So yeah, it's, it's definitely worth checking out this book called Profit First from Mike something or other. Yeah, and then there's probably another. That was that's four using my math skills. Uh, yeah. Probably another another book somewhere, uh, which was probably important. That's probably why I put it in the video, but can't remember. Uh, oh yeah, uh, I can remember the bonus book because I kind of included six in that list yeah, on the yeah. YouTube video. So yeah, the, the bonus book is called Gonzo Marketing, which is written by somebody again, forgotten his name. Um, so yeah, it's called Gonzo Marketing, and it's. It's almost like part business book, part um, like artistic statement sort of thing. So it's it's really well written and it's interesting. Uh, it's really really short, but yeah, I think interesting would be the best word. So it's quite revealing about marketing and it's got some really interesting and innovative marketing ideas in it. But at the same time, it's really artsy and weird. So it's not as much of a how to compared to some some of the other books, but it's it's, it's definitely worth a read and it's pretty cheap because it's so short. So yeah, it's called uh, Gonzo Marketing. I'll have to check that out. That leads me to a, a, a question which I've never asked anyone before on the podcast. Um, do you think there are parallels between being an artist or working on music and entrepreneurship or business? Uh, it's a good question. It's something. I mean, from from what I gather, you follow all the all the business startup sort of entre- entrepreneurial yeah, stuff, yeah, like like I do. Yeah, I, it's a. Uh, there's certainly lots of parallels. I think the biggest parallel between music and another industry is the music industry and the, com- and, the and the comedy industry, which I personally mm. I find really interesting, but I don't see many other people talking about. There's definitely going to be some parallels between uh, the yeah. I think the, the entrepreneurship. I'd say it's talk more about, like talk about the comedy for a moment because I'm super curious. Oh, cool! Yeah, I've definitely. Never heard so, that uh, yeah, what's, what's the best way to start? So, you know how in, in in music, for example, you have lots of different ways to to make music, but the, well, not not make music to, to make money, but everyone mm. always focuses on the main one, just like being a DJ, touring, etc. Literally, you've got exactly the same like standard approach in in comedy. So, the typical way, mm. if you want to be a stand up comedian, is at least in the UK, you work the the club circuit, and then you go through the motions. You go on this show, you go on that show. It's almost like a laid out structure, a way to work your way up through the comedy ranks and just like you have work in the DJ clubs, you have work in the comedy clubs. Um, so it's, it's all exactly the same, but then there's also all these like side things you can do in comedy, just like music. So in the case of music, you have making sample packs, teaching people, doing tutorial videos, all that sort of stuff. In comedy, you have writing on people's shows, you have um, yeah, lot, lot, lots of guest writing work. You can also do YouTube. Um, so when you start to dig into it, it's almost like exactly the same industry, just instead of making music, you're, you're basically making comedy, you're making jokes. Um, and even down to the creative the creative process is exactly the same. Like the way comedians talk about trying to construct a set is exactly like I hear musicians talk about trying to write an album. So the way they talk about how they write in terms of do you just sit down for two hours every day in a routine or do you just write when you're inspired? It's it's, it's all exactly the same. Mm. So it's a, I'm, I'm a big fan of watching interviews with comedians for that reason because it's it's like a nice it's, it's, it's a nice way to get a take on the creative process but at the same time it's not it's not all music which which i think is pretty interesting and the, and the comedians have exactly the same struggles in terms of making money so it's even 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 if you look down the business and uh financial and all, all that sort of route uh comedy is, is exactly the same as music so I, I find it really interesting to see interviews with those guys yeah that's fascinating i'll have to look more into that i mean i've i've always found strong parallels between um, writing and music and maybe that's because yeah. I spend a lot of time writing but it's like you know an author will start their book with what they call a uh, shitty first draft and then you know clean it up and edit it and I, I kind of look at that and I go yeah I mean that's how a lot of people make music exactly um, yeah and um, especially with a comedy if, if you need some resource uh, some resources to check out <coughs> by far the best is called comedians comedian podcast 
Um, it's literally in the same way that if you've heard of, say, like Pensada's Place or, or, or even this podcast, it's all about asking uh, artists about all the different aspects of what they do from the creative through to the business. Uh, the Comedians Comedian podcast does exactly the same with all the comedians. And uh, it's, it's completely free, of course. So it's worth, worth checking that out if you need some interviews on, on, on comedians. Yeah. Fantastic. I'll definitely look into that. Um, what's, the, what's the biggest challenge you've faced so far in your career, either as an artist or educator? Cool. Um, yeah, it's something uh, <clears throat> that, that no one's ever asked before, but I have actually um, thought about it because I heard a, a similar question elsewhere in a completely different context. But um, yeah, it's uh, it may sound a bit strange. Uh, if, if, if I was to sum up my answer in a somewhat jo- half-joking way, I'd say realising I'm probably not as good at making music as Skrillex is which kind of sounds a bit like I'm joking because I always tend to joke about Skrillex, but in all seriousness, when I first started producing, for whatever reason, um, probably some like megalomaniacal complex or something, I thought that I could just, within six months, make an EP, it would blow up, I'd start touring the world, which yeah. kind of may sound a bit crazy, but I'm sure I'm not the first person to no, ever, no, ever, I've ever thought, thought the that. Same thing. <laughs> um, and then the more, the more, when I started producing, the more I realized, oh, I'm probably not going to be able to do that in six months. Um, oh, it's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll give myself a year. And then I realized I'm getting better, but it's, it's still not going to happen in a year's time. So I think the, the important thing is, is realizing expectations and stuff. Um, just like, just like how I was saying, it's, you tend to overestimate what you can do in a year, but underestimate what you can do in five. <clears throat> like, like, like most people say, I've, I've heard literally five or six people say this and it's what I initially said. Oh, if I haven't done this in a year's time, I'm stopping or I, I give myself a year to turn this into a full-time thing or I want to release on Ausler in a year. Mm, uh, it's yeah. quite easy to set that year as a as an expectation because it's just an arbitrary amount of time, but it's it's not necessarily always the correct one. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a huge fan of shooting for the, the moon and then you end up a bit closer sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's certainly how I've, how I've got to where I am. But at the same time, you do have to try and manage those expectations. Otherwise, you're going to go a bit crazy. Um which is always a really difficult one, but it's something that I'm trying to think about more and trying to work out a, a logical, uh, quite a logical way to set expectations because you obviously want to set them really, really high, but at the same time, you don't want to set a redi- like a, like an an, an unrealistic expectation. Like if you first if you've said been producing six months, it's probably unrealistic to expect to release on Mousetrap in six months' time. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. maybe possible, but. Yeah, it's not really it's not really realistic. And then you could you could always argue, unless you've been doing it a few years, that any success you have is not a function of you. It's just a function of the, the circumstances, anyway. I mean, if you look mm. at say like Martin Garrix, I mean, he's he's definitely a much better music producer than I am. Um, but at the same time, he also had a lot more help than I did. So that's the reason he got to where he is. So it's kind of like a mm. uh, although Martin Garrix is amazing and everything, um, and he can certainly claim a good percentage of his success as as, as his own doing. There's always going to be quite a big percentage of Martin Garrett's success that is the the doing of, was it spinning or whoever pushes him? I don't really know how, how his business yeah, works. Yes. So yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, perhaps I was talking to him about expectations, got distracted by Martin Garrick's <laughs> typical, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that, I think the, yeah, the big, the biggest challenge I had was, yeah, setting expectations. Cause I, I genuinely, and I'm sure lots of other people have as well thought that within a year I could turn it into a full-time thing. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, I re- and that turned out not to be true. But saying that, it, it took it only took four years, which in the grand scheme of things, it isn't that long. I mean, it may sound mm. quite a long, quite a long time if you just start. The, the, the thought of having to do something for four years could be quite long, but in the grand scheme of things, four, four to five years isn't isn't too bad. No, not at all. I, it's interesting actually because I've been thinking about that as well. Uh, there seems to be a dichotomy between being patient and like. Like, I'm sure you know that there are benefits to having short deadlines and like imposing ridiculously hard um, projects on yourself or things things to do, like, you know, finish yeah, this in a week. And that's a good thing to do. But at the same time, like, you do have to be patient. And that's really hard to juggle, at least in yeah. my experience. Yeah, it's, 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 it's almost like you have to set yourself, uh, use Parkinson's law or whatever it is um, to, to set mm. yourself really, really short short targets the whole time. So you're working really hard and you're always trying to strive for the best things, but at the same time, understanding the bigger picture, like at some sort of like meta level that, uh, yeah, like, yeah, you've almost got, got to like look at it at two, two different levels, like the micro and the macro level to figure out um, where you're going. But at the same time, yeah, you... you um, I don't want to give anyone the wrong idea. You do have to set yourself crazy high expectations the whole time. And there's no, there's no reason why you shouldn't set the goal of a hundred thousand plays on SoundCloud as a goal. 
Mm. You may not get there or you may get there. So you do have to set that goal, but then also understand that it may not happen in the long term. That makes a lot of sense. So, so for a new producer, for instance, it could be making five songs a week. Yeah. Um, but knowing that those songs probably aren't going to blow up and, and lead to success because they are going to suck. Like that's just the nature of doing creative work early on. Exactly. Um, but doing that hard thing consistently. I mean, I, I feel like if someone produced five songs a week, for six months say they would be ahead of most people i know who've been producing for like two years absolutely like like if um <clears throat> I've, I've listened to most of the the pensados place interviews with the hip-hop producers like all hip-hop beats producers mm. and the, the really common thing uh, that i see from the the guys who produce the beats for hip-hop um tracks or whatever you call hip-hop stuff not, not really into the scene uh yeah, the, the big thing that they do is they just produce an awful lot of beats, like like more so than tracks for EDM producers. Like EDM producers may do a track a week if they're quite productive, or a few tracks a week if they're really productive. But these hip hop guys that produce beats, they'll 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 turn out like one a day sometimes, or like mm. two a day or something. They'll just keep keep going through it, and then when you've made six thousand beats, there's going to be some of them, even if you haven't been progressing that far. Just purely based on numbers, are going to be quite good. But chances are, because you've made six thousand of these beats you're actually going to be really good at making beats so it's uh mm. yeah so so you're a proponent of the uh quantity over quality thing early on uh definitely 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 early on i'd say once you're four or five years into it or maybe maybe not four or five when you're two or three years into it you can start to sit back a bit and actually even two or three maybe, maybe not long enough depends how hard you work let's say two to five years yeah, into it yeah. you can start to Maybe look at quality being more important than quantity, but certainly early on, there's absolutely no no substitute for for, for quantity. And, and part of it mm-hmm. is when you when you're new at producing, you just you just don't have the ear developed for it, um, mm-hmm. which is also a reason why I, I, I do recommend people get into sound design if, if they can, because you end up hearing sounds a lot more critically when you start getting into designing them yourself. So when you start designing sounds yourself, you can pick presets a lot more efficiently because um, you can you end up just, just listening to it a lot better. So yeah, definitely early on, just produce, produce, produce lots and lots and lots. Still try and learn loads, just crank out tracks. Don't get too protective over them if you finish them, mm-hmm. uh, especially early on. And then once you have that experience down, uh, sounds a little bit condescending to talking like that, but it's, it's definitely the truth. Once, no, once, you have, true. once you have that experience down and you have that slightly better ear, then you can start to think more about quality over quantity. Um, I personally think, but there's definitely a few people that's, that think even experienced producers should still be talking about quantity over quality. So it's not, uh, that's just, that's just my own opinion on that. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's crucial advice and I wish more people would take it. Um, you know, cause, cause I have some people say, I've been working on this song for, you know, four months now, been producing for a year and it's just like, dude, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, it's interesting though, that you talked about the hip hop guys, uh, saying that they'd work on a beat a day like i don't see that i know some people are doing it but i don't see that happening in the um the electronic music production not at all, not at all. <laughs> why do you think that is why do you think there's a, a disparity there i think it's it's probably quite a few reasons to be honest one of them is definitely choice paralysis uh i mean we have we have as, as i'm sure you have i must have mm-hmm. two three thousand kick drums on my hard drive and i, and I don't <laughs> even think i have a big sample pack library on my computer. So when, when you have two, let's say 2000 kit drums, you can spend an hour choosing a kit drum and the kit drum is something that you need to work in a track. So it's important, but at the same time, when you have 2000 kit drums, it's, it's not a surprise that tracks can take months to do sometimes because mm. you spend ages choosing one thing and then you get that. There's also another thing where, uh, it's almost like there's some fancy psychological name for it, where if you, um, because there's so many, there's, there's so much choice, you feel like, no matter what you choose, there's going to be a better one. So you end up never content or never satisfied with what you're making. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. It's quite important. Uh, it's the reason why, um, slightly off topic, um, uh, Apple only sell like three of any model. It's so you don't get this weird thing where you wish you'd had the other one. You just pick the one yeah, that yeah. is for you. Um, so there's, there's quite a bit of that in, in EDM, I think, where there's just so many options, so much choice that you end up either never making anything or making something and not being happy with it. So going back to change it. So you've just got to make decisions a lot of the time. And then there's also an element of that. There's just so much to do in making EDM, to be honest. I mean, cause you're making the whole track. You, you could be making your own drums, making your own presets. You're writing the songs, you're arranging it, you're mixing, you're mastering it. You could be 
recording your own vocals. Um, there's just so many, so much to it that it actually takes quite a long time, to be honest, to do a track. Like, um, I've, I've, I've been wanting to do more of these, like how to make a track in an hour videos on YouTube, but also have the mm. track good. Like I've done, I've done a yeah. few of those um, somewhat jokingly, but the problem is like, if I was to say, make a track, let's say I did loads of prep work for a week, got the track dialed, and then I wanted to make it in an hour. So I knew exactly what I was doing. I genuinely couldn't do enough clicking in an hour with no, with no talking to, to, to make a track. If, if you just go through the motions of dragging this out, setting the fade there, adjusting the level there, doing this, doing that, even if I had it all scripted and did no talking, I, I, I couldn't really make a complete EDM track in an hour of clicking and dragging. Mm. And, and, and then that's not really even factoring in listening to it through. So normally you click there, you make a change, you listen to it for a bit, make another yeah. change, listen to a little bit. It just takes quite a long time, to be honest. And I've been trying to think about way around that and i haven't quite figured it out but yeah it, it, it just takes quite a long time to be honest it's a good explanation um so so music production especially edm has become uh like really popular over the last 10 years yeah and you know there are a lot of people wanting to make it i was talking to someone i was i was in a taxi the other day and and you know the guy asked me what i did for a job and i was like i you know run this website and i teach people um, music production and he said you know what's that um, and so I had to explain it but what what I've what I said to him was like you know how like like when I was a kid when I was 13 I wanted to play guitar yeah um, like that's what I wanted to do so I got guitar lessons but nowadays like the upcoming generation they want to make electronic music like that's the thing because what they hear on the radio is not music with guitar in it like obviously there are some songs but the large majority of it at least over here i'm not sure about the uk is here, dance yeah. music yeah definitely um and so there's a lot of people wanting to get into this so my question is what three pieces of advice um would you give to those people those new producers definitely uh cool i'd say if I, yeah, but there's, there's definitely three bits of advice. The first one, which I've kind of touched upon, so I won't spend too long talking about it now, is realize how long it takes to get good. Uh, something I've, we've talked about quite a bit, quite a bit in this, but it's something that is absolutely essential for a new producer is understand that, yes, you can make a professional sounding track in a year or two, but you won't be up to the level of Knife Party or Diplo in two years. I mean, yes, you can make a sufficiently good track, but yeah, in say a year or two, but to get to that absolute top level, it will take four or five years at least. So it's just setting expectations is the first step. Um, but we've talked quite, quite a bit about that. And the next bit of advice I have is, it's going to be, um, what's the best way of putting it? Uh, almost like you want to produce a novel genre or a genre that is, well, I suppose it depends. If, 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 your main, if your main goal in the first year or two is getting people listening to your music, then you have to produce in a, in a quirky, interesting, trend, uh, trendy genre. Otherwise, you just stand no chance. If you don't necessarily want to build up a following in those first few years, then you don't have to. You can make a, a dubstep or a, a techno track or whatever, and that's cool because you're just developing your skills. But if, if, if you do want to start the process of building up a following in those first few years, you do have to pick a trendy genre that has low production standards. So for me personally, I got into music starting 2010 sort of time when Mumbaton started being a trendy thing and it looked like it was going to be the next biggest thing. It's kind of fizzling out a little bit now. I think only Dylan Francis is the biggest guy playing it. Mm -hmm. But uh, for me personally, when I got into making music, I could make a Mumbaton track um, even after only producing four to six months. Even though the, the production standard was horribly low, because it was a novel, trendy genre at the time, some of the reasonably big Mumbaton DJs would play my track just because there wasn't that many Mumbaton tracks. Mm -hmm. So it was my way of almost like getting my foot in the door with building up a following uh, slightly before where you might expect. So you've got to have quite keen eyes and ears to figure out what genre that might be. Certainly if you're just looking at, I don't know, the big, big blogs or whatever, you're not going to see the trendy genres coming. So you won't necessarily know what genres to produce but it's it's definitely something i recommend most people do um, most people do if, if if the goal is to build up a following in those first few years um and then yeah the other important thing for new producers is you do have to get good functional samples so when i say functional samples i mean stuff like drums sound effects uh i suppose they're gonna be the main ones and, and then maybe a few good normal sounds like a few good standard leads a few good standard bass sounds because, I mean, if you take drums, for example, if you're using medium quality drums, then your track will never sound great. It will, it could sound quite good, but it will never sound great. You're always going to be held back by the fact your drums just aren't good enough. 
and when you've only been producing a year, there's a zero chance that you, you're ever going to make your own drum very good. Even if you yeah, layer yeah. up existing sounds, there's no chance at all, um, to be honest. I mean, I'm slightly generalizing, but I think it's kind of true. I don't think anyone in the first year of producing has ever made a great kick drum or a great yeah, snare. Yeah, they yeah. probably made a kick drum or a snare drum, and that's cool. But for the sake of a, of a functional sound that isn't the creative point of interest in the track, I recommend just get amazing samples, get kick drums, get snares, get hi-hats that you know sound good. They'll definitely work in the club, the car, laptops, everywhere. Just stick them in your track, don't process them. And then, yeah, get on with the actual music writing part of the track. Absolutely, man. I, I have to be honest, like I I haven't, I've designed about two kick drums and it's really every time just, I start really a song, I just, <laughs> yeah, I, I just use a good kick drum from a sample pack. Exactly. Um, yeah. And it's uh, like, like for me, it, it comes down to what I was saying earlier. Like it's all about thinking about what the creative point of the track is. If you're making, was it hard style or something where the kick drum's the important bit, there are a few mm-hmm. genres where the mm-hmm. kick drum is the center of attention. So in those situations, you probably would want to make the kick drum, but in almost all genres, the kick drum is not what you listen to. I mean, I couldn't tell you what the kick drum sounds like in Scary Monsters and Nice Brights by Skrillex, even though that's one of my favorite songs, but yeah, it's just a yeah. kick drum. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's designed to do something. It's designed to define that moment in time to hit you in the, hit you in the chest and that's it. It's like some of these, um, these famous producers are using the same samples in every song. Every single song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm, I think I was, was it Sebastian Leger? However you say that, say his name, like mm-hmm. a tech, tech house producer. It was like, yeah, I use pretty much the same bass in every track. And yeah, yeah. one of two or three kick drums in every single track I've ever made <laughs> because they work. Yeah, and that means not? he just inserts them and that's great. He gets some with writing a track. It's not like a band switches guitars, like a guitarist in the band switches yeah. <laughs> guitars with every song. Yeah. Um, I just want to talk quickly about the, the first point you made, which is that it does take a long time. Um, and we have talked about this at length, but a lot of people, in fact, I got an email just today from someone who said, you know, man, I'm, I'm getting fed up. Like I'm finding it tough. Um, like I'm not, I'm not good. Like I can't do this, this and this. And I think there's a point uh, for 99% of people and the 1% is super lucky and I envy them. But there's a point in every artist's career where they face that dip um, where things really get tough and you know they just kind of look at the years ahead and it's like man this is going to take a long time to get good i'm fed up what advice would you give to them to like keep the excitement up and and basically stay sane definitely yeah it's something that to some extent i've 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 had myself it's something that i think pretty much anyone doing anything creative whether that's writing a song or even just making a powerpoint presentation or something i don't know like literally wherever you're creating something from nothing if you do that quite a lot, there's, there's, there's going to be points where you just feel, just feel like it's not happening. Um, and that could be creating a track or even just creating your online presence because arguably building up a following is a form of creativity anyway. Mm. But I, th- I think the key thing is just to step back and remind yourself why you got excited by that thing in the first place. So for me personally, when I'm, when I'm just say, trying to write some music and I'm, um, I've been doing it a few years now, not crazy long, but uh, sometimes I just go to write music and I nothing like springs to mind as being, oh, that'd be a cool idea. That'd be worth writing a song about. So in those sort of situations, the big thing for me is stepping back, just like shutting down Ableton and just listening to new music for an hour or two. And then chances mm-hmm. are, if you listen to new music for an hour or two and you're listening not to the same, not not your same songs, but you've got to listen to new stuff. So yes. I don't know, for, for me, like Noisier Radio is my favorite place right now because they're playing just weird experimental sort of sound designing stuff. So I'll listen to say Noisier Radio for an hour and then, Every single time I listen to Noisy Radio for an hour, a new episode, something in that tr- something in that episode will get me excited. It could be a weird little sound design thing. It could just be a weird energy, whatever it is. Um, something will get me excited, and then yeah, I've, I've got that got that spark back. So I think yeah, for most people, yeah, to just literally listen to new music is going to be the best thing to do, or just just to, just take a break. It's something that the mm-hmm. business guys talk about quite a bit. If you're like working crazy long hours, week in, week out for like six months or whatever, and you get a bit burnt out on business, the best thing to do is just just take a week off. Like your business won't come crashing to a halt, probably. Uh, exactly. So, and then you can just come back a week later. And, and the same thing could apply for music. If you're if, if you're like working on tracks every evening, which I do recommend, by the way, but if you're working on it every single day, that's all you do. You take up all your free time. Then yeah, literally take a week off and don't do any music and then come back to it and uh hopefully it'll feel fresh and new again and you'll be excited to to make something absolutely i think that's great advice um right two more quick questions first is other than other than the five business books uh you recommended (laughs) are there any 
books or resources for that matter that have played a significant role uh, in your journey as an artist and educator? Yeah, by far the best is going to be something I briefly mentioned, but not properly called Pensado's Place. Have you heard of that one? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, perfect. So yeah, Pensado's Place is, it's almost like the biggest secret in the EDM world, but it's its almost too good to be true. Like for, for those who haven't heard about Pensado's Place, uh, Dave Pensado, Grammy award-winning mixer, arguably the best best mixer in the world right now. Of course, you could always argue one way or another. So let's say top five mixers in the world, and we're talking pop music. So literally the best, the best, the best. Every single week he gets in one of his uh, production friends. It could be a mixer, it could be a Grammy award-winning mastering engineer, recording artist, songwriter. So literally the, the best people in the music industry as a whole, not just EDM. He'll get one of them in and talk to them for an hour about the advanced stuff. So for those advanced little nuances and tips, there's absolutely nothing better. And one of my favorite things about the entire the entire podcast or YouTube show, whatever you call it, that I think is pretty has been pretty game-changing to me is how Dave Pensado talks about music and how he talks about doing EQing and stuff. So lots of people will talk about in EDM like, oh, I boost my kick drum here to make it punchier or I boost my, I don't know, or I cut my bass there to clean it up. But that's not the way that Dave Pensado talks about music. When Dave Pensado is mixing these tracks, he's talking about adding a delay to emphasize emotion or to emphasize feeling, or he's talking about using EQ not to, to make it stand out in the mix, but he's, he's talking about using EQ to give more kind of energy or more feeling in the track. So it's, it's the way he's talking about music that has been really eye-opening to me. So even if you're a new producer and you've still got lots to learn anyway, I still recommend listening to this just because it allows you to visualize the like the technical process at a, at a much more logical place that's a weird sentence. So it, it allows you to view music production the way you should view it. So instead of doing these changes just to to make a track, you're doing these changes to to, to increase energy or to increase emotion in, in the in the track and what you're doing. So it's something that I've tried to tried to build into my tutorials more as well. Like not just going through the motions, but trying to focus on emphasizing the important bits of the track. It's just I know the the, the way he talks about it is just really really eye-opening to me and it's a, to be honest it's the same as same as noisier like i forget the i always muddled up the the three guys names in noisier but the like the main dude who everyone knows is the main dude who does all the production mm. it's, it's it's fascinating whenever you see an interview with him just because of how he visualizes music and how he talks about it it's different to how an average producer talks about it so mm. i'm just a big fan of like literally just even if you're not even listening just stick dave pensado one in the background and then subconsciously all that will go into your brain and then you will start viewing music in that same way i think that'd be really really important yeah that's awesome yeah um all right one last question you're stuck on a remote island you have unlimited food drink and a laptop with ableton um and some decent headphones but you're only allowed Three plugins, one synth plugin and two effect plugins. What are those? Oh, what are those plugins? Yeah, definitely. Uh, in fact, people who watch my channel can probably guess the first one, which is Serum, because Serum is the greatest thing yeah, in the yeah. universe. Uh, like, like so much so, I reckon almost like how you have different DAWs now, Serum will almost be on the same level as a DAW in five years' time. It won't be like, I don't know what synth you're using, like Massive or FMA or Serum. It'd be like, are oh, using Serum or something else just because it's it's literally <laughs> taken over the universe, especially with the expandability with wavetables and stuff like. So yeah, mm. Serum is the future. It's the present. It's everything. Um, so yeah, Serum will be the synthesizer because I can make pretty much any sound imaginable and more with that. Um, and then yeah, so Serum for synthesis just to generate the initial sounds. And then, because yeah, you can even make drums, sound effects, everything. Yeah. Also, mm. as a bit of a tangent, because um, I'm sure lots of people using this uh, have Serum. Serum does more than just make growl, basses, and snail sounds. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it makes literally everything imaginable. So even though everyone's just using it to make a snail's bass uh, and stuff, like it actually makes everything. So try to try to make everything be cool. And then, um, yeah, in terms of plugins, uh, two quite not necessarily the most exciting plugins, but just super functional. Got Isotope Trash Two because that would do all your distortion, not only normal distortion, but interesting distortion, which is a big part of lots of bass music, drum and bass, dubstep, electro, all that kind of stuff. So Trash 2's got your distortion covered. And then also Trash 2 has loads of interesting filters built into it with a LFO and um, LFO modulation, envelope modulation. So you can do interesting filtering with Trash 2 as well. It also has convolution reverb built into it. So you can do all your interesting stereo reverby sort of stuff with the reverb component, and it has a good delay in it. 
So that's kind of an all-in-one sort of situation. Um, yeah, the, the trash two delay is really cool because you can just store each delay instance. So you get like really mm-hmm. cool like delay tails happening. So have a, have a play around with that. And then, yeah, the last one would be a super functional one called uh, Isotope Ozone 7 and then the advanced one yeah. might as well. Um, just because it does all the technical stuff you need, whether it's cleaning up a sound or it could be compression, EQ, adding a bit of um, tape saturation, whatever it is, uh, lim- limiting, mastering, just all your technical dynamics, EQ, saturation sort of stuff. Uh, that's yeah, a, Ozone that's a pretty smart answer because that's like seven plugins in one. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's even got your... Uh, your, your vintagey stuff, if, if, if you like vintage yeah. things, um, for doing. In fact, yeah, the, the vintage compressor is pretty cool. Not that I tend to do much compression. Um, that's a whole topic for uh, an, another day. But um, yeah, the, the vintage compressor has some really cool smeary, phasey stuff happening when you use it. So yeah, it's worth playing around with that. Absolutely, awesome. Well, thanks heaps for coming on, Adam. No worries. Really good interview. And finally, where can people find you online? On the internet. So yeah, if, if you literally just Google like I don't know, multiplier YouTube. Um, I should hopefully appear. I mean, if, if you just Google multiplier, then uh, a Wikipedia page about an economics principle appear, appears. <laughs> so don't, don't, don't do that. Um, uh, so yeah, literally just go on. Yeah. YouTube's the hub of everything. I do post on Facebook. So yeah, follow me on Facebook, but uh, yeah, to be honest, um, everything's all around the YouTube now for me. So yeah, subscribe to me on YouTube if you like subscribing to stuff and uh, yeah, that'd be the best place to find me. Awesome. Uh-huh.